Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is my colleague here at George Mason University, Don Boudreau. Don is the chair of the economics department, and we blog together at Cafe Hayek. Don, welcome back to Econ Talk. Good to be here. Don, I want to talk about an issue raised by one of our listeners who wrote in an email, how do you distinguish when the government or the market is the more appropriate route for fixing a problem? I want to talk about the standard economic mainstream approach to this question and what I think is missing and in that analysis. And if we have time, I'd like to turn to some applications in particular policy areas. The standard mainstream answer to the question of what is appropriate for government and what's appropriate to the market usually is treated as one of looking for what's called market failure. So the standard view is that, well, you know, as long as markets are competitive and people have information and uh, there are no externalities, and we'll talk about what that is in a minute, then people pursuing their own self-interest, buyers and sellers, will produce an outcome that has a lot of attractive features. Uh, Adam Smith wrote about it in The Invisible Hand. Uh, the area of, of what's called welfare economics looks at the properties of the choices that people make under those situations. And the general consensus in economics is, is as long as there aren't some of these problems – uh, externalities, what are called public goods, imperfect information, uh, as long as there isn't monopoly, then everything's going to turn out fine. But of course, that leads to the conclusion that if any of those things do exist, if they're externalities, if they're public goods, if there's monopoly, if there's imperfect information, then things won't turn out fine and government is necessary to improve the situation. And and some conclude that, that that's what government does, that government fixes those things, basically. Uh, what's your reaction to that sort of mainstream view? Well, uh, before I actually give you my reaction, I want to I want to give a prefatory point. Okay. Um, it, it's called market failure. That's the common term that we economists and indeed others use. And but regardless of whether you think they are real, regardless of these failures, whether or not you th- you regardless of your prescriptions for how to attend to them, technically they're not market failures. Technically they are. Uh, failures of the institutional arrangements to allow markets to work. Uh, if if property rights in a particular uh, product, let's say fish in the ocean, are either in, uh, too difficult or costly to create or, or prevented from being created by uh, the authorities, then obviously markets are not going to work to uh, 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 govern uh, fish catches. Well, I want to stop you there. I want to make it clear. I want to make a, a, one of my many prefatory notes. I, I think there's going to be a lot of asides here in footnotes. When we say the market, I think what a lot of people have in mind is uh, people buy, being free. We talk about free markets. People are free to buy and sell, make profit. And we're usually talking, I think, what most people have in mind when we say the market is commercial transactions. But when you and I use the term, and I think when a lot of economists use the term, we're really talking about decentralized voluntary decision-making, uncoerced decisions. Some of those decisions are going to have nothing with, to do but with – within a framework of, of – uh, some sort of framework of property rights. Well, I want to come to that in a sec. So, so for example, we, we could talk about traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could talk about uh, – we could talk about the fishing issue you just talked about. Uh, when individuals – if you go fishing – and uh, nobody owns the ocean, and nobody owns individual fish. It's called a commons. Uh, you're free to, to fish and harvest that at your, at your good fortune. There's an incentive to overfish it. Each individual will, when catching a fish that's relatively small, keep it because rather than throwing it back, if you throw it back, the odds that you have the opportunity to catch it when it grows larger is relatively small. You keep every fish that you catch in theory would be the claim, and therefore the ocean gets overfished, the stock of fish gets too small, the average fish caught gets t- too small, where too small or uh, too few fish means fewer or smaller than the fishermen, if they could act in concert in some fashion, would be able to to achieve. 
So one, one argument would be if we could create some property rights in fish, the incentives would be in place for people to uh, act accordingly. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't a market before and after in both situations. There is, but it's not what I think most people think of as a market where buyers and sellers are interacting. When we talk about the market for fishing, we're not talking about the retail market. We're talking about people going to the ocean and fishing, even though that's not a, a bought thing. So I just want to make that, that I hope, clear. Yeah, and, and what I was referring to is the, the standard uh, traditional examples of market failure, the fishing case, uh, air pollution cases. Those are typically instances in which property rights of the kind that we find in ordinary commercial markets where there is no failure – uh, don't exist. And so it's, 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 to me, a little bit problematic to call it a market failure when the uh, foundations of what we recognize to be markets don't even exist there. It isn't that the market's given an opportunity to work and, boy, it's failing. It's that the institutional structure required for markets to work, for whatever reason in a particular case, don't exist. And so I just have, I, I, I just want to issue that warning about the term market failure. It's too embedded in the literature and, and popular discourse to change it now. Yeah, but the purpose of this podcast is to get people to think a little bit more uh, uh, contrary, in a contrarian way about it, perhaps, if it's justified. So. Yeah. Now, to, now to, to, to the original, the, the original uh, question, uh, that is, as you described it very well, the standard view, of course, um, among economists. I think it's probably a little bit more uh, questioned now. Economists are a little bit more skeptical of it now than they were 50 years ago. It reached its pinnacle, that view did, with the work of Francis Bator or, or, or Bader, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, in the 1950s with his article, The Anatomy of Market Failure. And Paul uh, Samuelson's work on public goods. In the 1950s, it's right. Uh, and and when, when Coase began writing, and then uh, Aaron Director and later uh, Coase himself editing the Journal of Law and Economics, a much more sophisticated, institutionally rich picture of how markets work or don't work and why they work and don't seem to work in certain circumstances started coming to light as opposed to just looking at you know, high theory and, and equations and, and, and curves. Um, but nevertheless, you, you, you go to the American Economic Association meeting in January and you pick any random economist of the thousands who are roaming around some big city hotel – uh, and you ask that person, so what, what, what's the role of government? I mean, that's, that's the answer they'll give. Yeah. Fix uh, market failure, provide public goods, goods that would be underprovided by the private sector. Yeah, and, and, and by the way, market failure, and I'm not sure when this came in, market failure, as these economists then and now still traditionally use the term, includes not only um, things that most reasonable people would say, well, yes, uh, that's a problem if – if there are no property rights in fish, and we know that people like to eat fish, but all the fishermen uh, are overfishing the ocean so that, you know, within a year or two, the fish stocks will become extinct. Most people would regard that as a problem. They wouldn't say, oh, no, that's, that's, that's working wonderfully. We may disagree on how or even whether it should be fixed, whether the cost of fixing it are worth incurring, but most people would think it's a problem. But other things that are often described as market failure are a little bit more nebulous. Economists typically de oftentimes describe uh, – Unequal income distribution as a market failure. Yeah, it's not clear part. why that's a market failure. Uh, I, I can see how you might go down that road, but that's in a different class from the uh, uh, core set of market failures that, that inevitably turn on the absence or, or uh, uh, sufficient development of private exchangeable property rights. And the more general question of there are things in the world we're not happy about. What should we do about them? And some people would put in unequal incomes as an example of that. There is still an issue of whether it should be uh, fixed collectively in a, in a right. public way through government welfare programs and taxation or whether it should be fixed collectively in a private way through charity and other uh, social institutions, religious institutions, voluntary uh, associations that would make – uh, help people who are not, who are not doing well. Mm -hmm. So I, I, that it's some of the issues we're going to talk about are going to come into play there. But I would like to focus. Let's, let's keep with this issue of of so-called market failure. Let's go back to the issue you raised of fishing. We could think of a whole host of ways that we could improve the size of the fish catch, given that in the absence of property rights. Uh, uh, you mean f increase the fish catch over time. We could we could improve the 
both the size of the average fish that's caught and the ease, the ease of catching fish. Let, let, me, let me set it up a little bit more clearly. In the current world, uh, in a world of so-called uh, free market fishing, uh, there's going to be an incentive to catch too many fish. And the stock of fish is going to be smaller than the fisherman would like. And the size of the average fish is going to be smaller than, than would be uh, in their in their self in their collective interest. So we need we probably given those incentives, we're going to be unhappy with the outcome. The stock of cod in the Atlantic Ocean is is small. Now there are many many there's not as many cod as there used to be. They're smaller, uh, and it's harder and harder to make a living catching fish. And that is the result of of individuals pursuing their self interest in the face of the institutional constraints that, that exist. Let's talk about the different ways you could solve that problem, that we could solve that problem, or we could choose among if we were, we were king for a day. Way number one would be to say, let's do nothing. We'll just let the cod stock become smaller. It's, as you say, some people, that's unfortunate. We could do nothing. If we do nothing, there'll be an incentive to farm cod. Might work, might not work, but, but that's what has happened with many types of of fish that have been overfished. Uh, tuna are being farmed now in the Pacific Ocean. It's a weird thing, but they're being farmed. Uh, trout are being farmed uh, private in private uh, freshwater uh, farms of, of, of trout. So that's one way to solve the problem. One way is do nothing and let voluntary activity, profitable activity, ri- arise as a way to cope with the fact that people still want to eat fish. The second way to co- solve the problem is to regulate it, uh, is to say, okay. Command and control regulation. Command and control regulation. There's an incentive uh, to overfish, so we're going to put limits on it. We're going to say you can only catch a certain number of fish. We're going to say you can only fish during these times. We're going to put a limit, a minimum on the size of the fish you can keep. So you have to throw back those fish that are too small, even though it's in your own self-interest to keep them. We're going to force you to put them back. challenge with that approach, of course, is you've got to monitor and you got to spend real resources monitoring it. It's one of the challenges. A third way to fix it would be uh, to punish people who violate uh, certain norms, like um, if you catch a fish that's too small, we catch you, we're going to fine you, um, which, of course, you'd have to do in that, in that monitoring setting anyway. Another way to solve it would be to try to create some property rights, the, the solution that you mentioned. We're going to create certain areas of the ocean that you have uh, dibs <laughs> to, and people will compete. They'll buy and sell those, 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 uh, those, the property rights for those. That'll lead to a different, a different outcome. Uh, a fourth would be do nothing and see if there are going to be social norms that will evolve. Uh, there are many, many things that are unregulated where it's uh, considered gauche, unethical, immoral, repugnant to do the wrong thing. Littering is, is an example of that. It's against the law to litter in most places, but most people don't litter not because it's against the law, but because they feel guilty. They feel it's the wrong thing to do. Um, so social norms are another way to cope with that. So those are just – I'm sure there's more. I don't know if you can think of some more. But those are just some ways we might deal with the problem that the private incentives and the, fa- and the absence of property rights don't work so well. Um, I think the relevant question I'd like our listeners to think about is of those solutions – which one will government choose and which one would we like them to choose? Which one's going to be most effective in terms of cost and outcome and which one is going to be most attractive from the perspective of politicians? Those two are not necessarily the same thing. No. You, you know, one of the things that we, we at George Mason, the economics department here, is, is justly well known for is public choice scholarship. And public choice scholarship, as it was done by uh, Jim Buchanan and Gordon Tullock starting nearly 50 years ago, starting 50 years ago uh, in Charlottesville, was the, the, the insistence upon what's, what strikes most people today is just uh, almost a banal point, but at the time it wasn't, that uh, government is a human institution just like markets, and uh, it is illegitimate to presume that uh, government is going to work in the idealized way that we can imagine it working. It's just as illegitimate as it is to presume that markets will work in the idealized way that we can imagine them working. Uh, Shockingly to me, however, the notion of government as ideal problem solver still seems to be the default mode for a lot of people. 
it's a yeah confusion between what we'd like and what is. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And so for all the decision make for all the institutional quirks and imperfections that distort decision making uh, in, in the absence of government command and control oversight, uh, there are a whole host of institutional quirks and uh, imperfections that distort decision making in the public sector. Now, it still may be, of course, having said just that, it still may be that in a particular situation, uh, government control, government regulation, may someone may conclude that government regulation is the better solution to just letting things alone or seeing what will happen in the market. But it's 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 an unfair, not unfair. <laughs> it's a it's a scientifically uh, 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 incorrect, scientifically mistaken approach to say that uh, okay, this institution doesn't work very well. Therefore, this alternative institution is the way we have to go. That's just that's just incorrect. Clarify that. Yeah. You are making it. Uh it sounds so obvious, but I think for a lot of people, this is an extremely uh, shocking and and surprising idea. And I talk a lot to journalists, and when I put forward the idea, they're um, they're, they're sometimes either offended or uh, bewildered by it. So let's make the claim clear: when you talk about government as a human institution, um, we like the idea that politicians will help us. We like the idea that, and they say they do. That's what they tell us. They tell us they're out to help us and, and they care about us. And yet we understand when we think about it for, for not very long that, that they're human beings. They're not saints. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe they're less saintly than the average person. I, you know, I, I don't know, but I certainly wouldn't presume that they are more saintly. They, they often say that they're in public service as if it were a sacrifice, um, that, they're, that they're so caring about about the polit body politic that, that they've gone into this area. That is what they would say, but the that question is... what is, they do say. Yeah. That is what they do say. The question is, what's the evidence for that? What is the evidence that, that government um, is going to do what we'd like it to do or what politicians claim they're trying to do? So l let me make the comparison stark. Um, sometimes those of us who like freedom get mocked because we're, we always look at the world through rose-colored glasses and the market will, quote, solve everything. What you're really saying is that it's equally, um, it's no different to claim that the government will solve everything. And in particular, I think... In fact, I think that's a more absurd, it, it, fantastical I, claim. Now, why is that? I, be, I do too, be, but, but make the case. Because when, when we say, let the market handle it, when I say let the market handle it, that is really, in my view, a shorthand for saying the following, which, as you'll see, is a mouthful. Uh, look, this is a real problem. I don't know. I'm, I'm now talking about a particular problem, and I, and I say, let the market handle it. Again, what I'm really saying is, this is a mouth. This is, this is a giant problem. I have no idea what the best solution is. I, I doubt that anyone has any good idea what the best solution is. And so, the best we can do to let a thousand flowers bloom, let a bunch of people experiment with different alternatives on how to solve it. And who knows, someone or a couple of people with incredibly creative ideas that, that, that none of us could possibly think of on our own, or very few of us, they will present those ideas. And those ideas will come into play and into competition with other ideas. And out of, uh, that, wide, out of that widespread opportunity for creativity to arise, and out of the competition uh, among the different ideas, we will more likely get viable uh, approaches to deal with the problem than we will if we say, oh, let government handle it. Because then we're saying we're identifying one institution uh, uh, that is going to be in charge of dealing with the problem. And if you have a very difficult problem, why would we expect that a single institution is going to to solve it better than letting millions of free creative people put their minds to doing it. It's true, of course, the government can hire lots of experts. We're not talking about a single person in the government, typically. But nevertheless, it's, it's a hierarchical organi organization. And any, any solution that any of the people uh, at, at the bottom of the hierarchy 
will help to develop is going to be funneled up through one channel. And that's the solution we're going to try. Oh, sure, maybe it won't work, and we'll discover that a few months later. But here's another problem with government. It, you know, when government gets going in a certain direction, it creates interest groups. It creates interest groups in, uh, who, uh, who have uh, an incentive Mistake. To, 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 keep this, to maintain the status quo because they're getting paid for that. Sometimes we can reverse that. But that's Where? not true in the market. We have something in the market called bankruptcy or failure or losses. And, and, and the, the market has no incentive to maintain people uh, in the, their pursuit of what proves to be later mistaken courses of action, actions that don't generate net benefits to the public. And so I think saying let the market handle it is really a much more sophisticated uh, uh, and, and humble way of approaching the problem than saying, let government handle it, because the latter presumes that experts exist and can be dependent upon always to act in the public interest. Okay, I like those points, but I, I guess I would think about it in a different way. Let me give you, let me give you a different way to, to make that argument. Let's take a particular example. Let's take the example of pollution. And there was a problem in, uh, I think it was this in the 80s, when uh, smokestacks from electricity power plants were putting uh, sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere and, and it was drifting downwind <coughs> and affecting people other than the people who lived in the area and there was a demand to suddenly be done about it. Now, what was, what was done about it is the government mandated that scrubbers be put on these smokestacks, a particular form of technology that was uh, unbelievably expensive. Do you remember how much they cost? I don't remember how much they cost, but they were very expensive, yeah. I want to say, well, I, well, I'll look it up. I'll, we'll put a link to it up on the, on the site. But they were unbelievably expensive. And it's a very static form of technology. It just, that's what people had to use for, for quite a while. And for, for all I know, they're still being forced to use it. Um, but uh, there was an alternative way to reduce the amount of sulfur dioxide. The alternative way, which would still involve government. And this is why I'm, I want to... Mm -hmm. uh, give a different slant on, on what you argued, uh, government could have said, for every pound of SO2 that you pump into the atmosphere, you have to um, pay a fine. And the more you pump out, the more you'll be fined. Uh, end of story. That gives people an incentive to go out and find ways to reduce the amount of sulfur dioxide that they put out in the atmosphere. They might choose a scrubber. That might be the best technology, but there would be, then be an incentive for new technologies that would be profitable if you could do it more cheaply. Now, both of those are government solutions. So the, the government solution doesn't have to be a one-size-fits-all expert. One person decides it and loses the some of the incentives of the market. Now, the, the scrubber fine choice, people frame as... Um, uh, sometimes they call that fine solution a market solution. Or they might say that, it, which is actually what we actually ended up doing now, now that I remember, of course, we have tradable, uh, um, tradable emission rights. Tradable emission rights. You, you're given the right to produce a certain amount of SO2. If you can produce less, you can sell it, that right that you don't need anymore. And that's an incentive that produces an incentive for people to reduce the amount of pollution. Now, those are called market-based or market solutions. They're not really, in my, my definition, they're government attempts to use the incentives of markets to get to a better outcome than, than they otherwise would. But they're much more, they're not markets. However, they are much more attractive to me than the command and control top-down choice of technology of saying uh, scrubber or, or, or go to jail, uh, scrubber or shut down. So for me, I'm always going to look for solutions that are more decentralized rather than centralized. Unfortunately, government officials, and I don't want to use government as we've been using it as a, as a decision maker. There's no such thing as the government decides. Actual politicians have an incentive to typically to avoid decentralized solutions and, and to prefer centralized solutions. So the example of the SO2 tradable emission rights, the sulfur dioxide, is an extremely unusual one. Most of the time, the government imposes the, the scrubber technology. In the case of automobile pollution, uh, the government put in place requirements that cars have catalytic converters. That's a good thing. It reduced the amount of pollution. Uh, uh, a, 
a polluting of the air. Nobody owns the air, so we have a breakdown in property rights that we talked about earlier. The result is that people tend to, to pollute the air. And so a government regulation in that case could do a good job of making the world, could make the world a better place. Unfortunately, the way the government chose to do that was a way that was was politically, and here I use the phrase government chose to do it, the politicians who were making that decision chose a way to reduce the amount of air pollution from cars in a way that was extremely ineffective, which was to force cars to put on catalytic converters. It looks like it works. It did work. But unfortunately, there was a much better way to do it, which was to tax or fine uh, car makers for polluting a certain amount in the engines that they produced. The reason that would have been better is at the time of the catalytic converter regulation, uh, the Honda engine already produced less pollution than its competitors. It was below the level that the catalytic converter uh, were, was going to produce. But Honda was required to put that catalytic converter on anyway. Why? Answer, well, because political forces were in place to handicap a foreign competitor. GM and Ford and Chrysler, uh, their political power was such that they could force Americans who wanted to buy Hondas to pay more than they otherwise would. Nothing to do with economics, excuse me, nothing to do with, with making the world a better place, everything having to do with making GM and Ford Chrysler more profitable. It also turned out that GM held the patent for the catalytic converter. So, hmm, strangely enough, the government decided that a catalytic converter was a really good thing. So my point I want to emphasize is that the political forces you're talking about are always going to push government into directions that are uh, going to reward people who are powerful. And I want to make sure that when we advocate for these kind of issues like you know, pollution control, that we advocate for a particular type of pollution control. It's not enough to say private individuals acting in their own self-interest will often pollute, and therefore we need regulation. That's true. It's, regulation has the potential to make the world a better place, but not every kind of regulation does it equally well. In some ways, do it much better than others. The Honda story is identical, is, is identical in, its, in its, its essentials to the uh, story um, to, to, to what happened with the coal-burning power plants. I forget the exact details. It's been a while since I read the book by uh, Bruce Ackerman and um, Andrew uh, Hassler, I think is his name. Uh, and they, they recount, this was the 1977 Byrd Amendment to the Clean Air Act, where uh, Senator Robert Byrd, who had a lot of seniority, he, at the time I think he was Senate Majority Leader, uh, uh, he saw the Clean Air Act threatening uh, the, the coal mines that are so prominent in his home state of West Virginia. And the, the, pr the problem was the coal in West Virginia is, as I understand it, closer to the surface but than is coal out west. And so it's less costly to extract than coal out west. However, it's very high in sulfur content. It's dirtier. It's dirty. It's dirty coal, and so at, uh, my understanding, if, if if my memory is right, now I could be wrong. I could my memory could be faulty in the details here, but it's something like this that when the in the, when the Clean Air Act was first uh, passed, uh, there was the, the the power plants did have the option of this, to to choose how to reduce their emissions, and so they switched to the more costly but cleaner coal from out west. Which is what we'd want them to do because the real cost of the coal exactly. is actually higher when you include the pollution effect. Yeah, they, they, the, the firms and could have imposed scrubbers, put scrubbers on if they want. And so Bird came along and said, no, no, you must put scrubbers on regardless of the kind of coal you, you, uh, you burn. Now, and, and the scrubbers effectively got rid of much of the pollution. And so now, obviously, if you're an owner of a coal-burning power plant, you're going to buy the cheapest coal possible because you have to have the scrub, the costly scrubber anyway. Right. So you're not going to bother to paying for the high-priced coal. You're going to pay, buy the cheaper, higher sulfur content, low-priced coal. So two interesting things about this fact. One is uh, it, it's pretty clear evidence that government does not always act in the public, you know, purely in the public interest. Clearly, Robert Byrd uh, was doing this in order to protect jobs in. And profits in, in pro his. jobs and profits in West Virginia. And the other interesting thing is, uh, the environmentalists supported uh, to, to maybe maybe there were some exceptions, but by and large, environmentalists supported uh, the Bird Amendment. And there's no obvious environmental reason why they would do it. The level the the levels of pollution were not changed in any significant way, not reduced in any significant way. This was but, a more costly way to get to that. 
It was a more Pollution. costly way. And so, I, I, and so this tells us something about the motivation behind a lot of politically active groups, environmentalists included, but others as well. But in this case, we're talking about environmentalists. They have a strong incentive to signal to their contributors and potential contributors that, that they're on the job. And so the accuracy and the efficacy of the particular things they lend their support to and advocate is often sacrificed or is less important to them than the signals that the impressions they make that the impressions they make and so you know they they i'm i'm, I'm sure i this is long before i don't remember back then but I, i'm sure they would they, they probably sent out brochures uh uh and, and and mailings this is long before email uh saying oh you know we 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 help a petition for the legislation that resulted in the requirement that coal firms, uh, coal burning power plants use scrubbers. And that makes, you know, who, who, the typical donor doesn't follow these debates in any great detail. He, the typical donor gets the flyers, oh, this is great. The uh, XYZ environmental group uh, uh, used their contributions to push for scrubbers. Wonderful. They're saving, they're saving the earth. And of course, in that case, they did no such thing. They, they had nothing to do with saving the earth. It had something to do with, it was a, it was a strange coalition with uh, uh, the Senate majority leader at the time. I get, you know, one answer to that would be, well, the best is the enemy of the good. Political process is imperfect, and you know, that was the best they could get out of the deal, and that's so they, they supported it. And uh, a lot of times, the, the so-called reality of politics, oh, the compromise is <clears throat> inevitable. You know, is invoked as a way to justify things that are really not very attractive. Uh, but let me move to an application which, which is a little bit broader, which I think a lot of people uh, are uneasy about who are oriented toward the toward a free market uh, philosophy, which is antitrust. When I started this conversation, I said, you know, there's a lot of results in formal economic theory about the virtues of decentralized private free market outcomes. Uh, if markets are competitive, if there are no externalities, blah, blah, blah. Now, a lot of people stumble on that competitive thing, and I think it's a real problem with our education and the way we teach people economics. Mm -hmm. We teach people in economics uh, what's called the competitive market. Um, and unfortunately, I think a lot of undergraduates are taught that that means an infinite number of firms selling a, homogen you know, a homogenous, uh, uh, totally identical products um, all selling entry, yeah, and free, totally free entry. Um, I said homogeneous, homogeneous, um, free entry, perfect information about what the, one price for all for all the transactions that take place because there's there's perfect information, and that maybe that works for wheat, <laughs> but everything else is not competitive. Um, and so the uh, there, there's oligopoly because there's not an infinite number of sellers, or worse, there's a monopoly. And I think people then jump to the conclusion that one of the important roles of government is to make sure that markets are competitive. And, and one thing we all agree on, I think, across uh, the political spectrum is that competition is, is, is good. More is better than less, usually, although some people claim it's wasteful, put that to the side. But most people think that competition does help the consumer. So the more firms there are, the harder it is for them to make a profit, the better off consumers are going to be. Because the harder it is for them to make abnormal profits, excessive abnormal, profits. Yeah, excessive yeah. profits, gr gr gouging of the consumer. And Because in the back of, of the whole invisible hand argument that, that we rely on is, is about the constraints of power. Mm -hmm. So... In in our worldview, power is constrained by competition. In the uh, more activist, centralized, government-oriented worldview, uh, regulation is what restrains power. We, we, we all agree that people are greedy. Uh, we all agree that people out there trying to pursue their self-interest. Adam Smith and others' insights in Hayek is that, well – in pursuing their self-interest, constrained by competition. That's the key point. Constrained by competition, yes, they'd like to make a lot of profit. But constrained by competition, they have to serve the customer. The, the entrepreneur, the, the, the capitalist, the supplier has to serve the customer because of competition. And therefore, the implication is without that competition, the consumer will be taken advantage of and exploited. So my question is, is that is that an area where government is going to make the world better? 
Uh, a lot of people who love free markets argue that the key central role of government is antitrust because you got to make sure that markets are competitive. Yeah. True or false? A absolutely false, although I, I understand that even most economists today disagree because most economists, I think, don't stop to think seriously about what antitrust really is. And they don't, frankly, as you, as you alluded to, they take their, their language and their models a bit too seriously. Uh, just because an industry does not have an infinite number of firms does not mean that that, in that, that industry is monopolized. Uh, which is, or has monopoly power, which as you know, that's the common language. Here's an instance where knowledge of history is very useful. Let me say before I go on, historical pedigree doesn't prove anything about current reality, but it does shed light on that reality. Uh, one of the few pieces of serious archival research that I've done in my career is on the history of U U.S. antitrust laws. Of course, the first people say the first antitrust statute in the world was the Sherman Act, which was passed in July of 1890 by the U.S. Congress. That's not correct. The first pieces of antitrust legislation were state antitrust statutes uh, that were enacted beginning in 1889, so just a year before the Sherman Act, and they continued to be enacted at the state level in, 19, in 1890 and 1891 maybe even a handful in 1892. And you look at the origins of these statutes. I, I have to interrupt here. I think most people say, well, the origins were, well, you have the robber barons. That's right. They That's went out and were making a lot of money. They were had monopolies. They were exploiting the consumer. And so the government had to step in to help people. That's the standard story that uh, uh, pr you know, prior to the Gilded Age, you know, pro, you know, up until the, say 1870 or so, America was a decentralized, highly competitive economy. And then, for whatever reason, maybe you know, the, the railroad, the telegraph, uh, uh, just personalities. Who knows? Uh, uh, the Carnegies, the Rockefellers, the James B. Dukes, all became very powerful. We had these robber barons, and they started screwing consumers. And then Congress looked at this and said, "We, by golly, we can't, we can't let this go on." And so we'll stand pass, up for the little guy. We'll pass the Sherman <laughs> Act. And because we we care about consumers, the first um, the, the first hint that this story is uh, maybe not what not all that accurate, uh, 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 you get the first hint when you realize that Senator John Sherman himself was the sponsor in the Senate, the chief sponsor in the Senate for the McKinley Tariff, which was uh, passed in October of 1890, just three months after the Sherman Act, which at the time was the largest tariff increase in U.S. history. Uh, and so in July, he was the consumer's friend, and in uh, October, he was the consumer's energy, uh, enemy because he was enacting a, a tariff. Again, the, the economist thing of the Sherman Act is this economically uh, uh, pristine piece of legislation. Now, economists also understand that tariffs are uh, the, the are, are, are they are, they, they, are, they, they are are a tool for granting monopoly power to certain domestic producers. Put that aside. It, 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 it was because of that that I and, and some other colleagues at the time started researching these things. And so what we, what we discovered is that the industries that uh, were uh, singled out in the press and in congressional debate and in state debate as being among the most monopolized. They were, number one, they were industries that were growing large on a national scale because the railroads were growing and telegraphs were spreading. But prices in those industries were also falling by more than the average price fall. It was a period of slight uh, gentle deflation because outputs were increasing so heavily and it was a gold standard error so the money supply wasn't increasing. And outputs in those industries were expanding by more than outputs uh, in the economy in general. And so there's, the, if you just look at the evidence, this was first gathered, by the, as far as I know, by my, uh, my former GMU colleague Tom DiLorenzo in a, 19, a really fine 1985 article that he published in the International Review of Law and Economics. And so, so let, let, let there's sure no we, evidence let, of monopoly. Let's get the claim straight. So the claim was that these giant corporations, these, these, these um, large companies were exploiting consumers as sort of the received wisdom. Standard oil, uh, uh, American Tobacco, Carnegie Steel. And yet, apparently, even though they were growing, which 
on the surface might lead you to conclude that they were powerful because they had a big market share. They were not using that market share to exploit consumers. They were actually benefiting consumers. That's, Is that the claim? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The Hard chief, to believe. Well, look, you can look at the data, and there it is. The prices in those industries were declining faster than the prices in the economy as a whole, and the outputs were rising faster than the outputs in the economy as a whole. So then, then you look at who actually lobbied for antitrust. It was producers. It was the small – and, and, and this is a rel- relatively unknown story, although Gary Leidcap, also the great economic historian uh, – at uh, he was at Arizona. He may have moved, but 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 Gary did this work independent of uh, myself and Tom DiLorenzo. We both came to the same conclusion just about the same time that the uh, it really got sparked by the by activities in the meatpacking industry. Uh, one of the, one of my great heroes is Gustavus Swift, who was a middle class butcher in Boston, and he had the brainstorm that he could make a lot of money by centralizing the the slaughtering and distribution of 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 beef, chicken, and pork, so he set up a, a, a slaughterhouse in Chicago, which was a major rail terminal, uh, and uh, uh, very quickly, very within a matter of years, in just a few years, uh, he was shipping beef uh, all across the country. He also had the innovation that had come along of the refrigerator refri- rail car, refrigerator railroad car, which enabled him. Because prior to refrigerated railroad cars, all slaughtering had to be done pretty much Local. on site. Uh, so that's, those are the days when butchers were truly butchers, not just you know meat slicers as yeah. they are today. And so he was shipping beef, lamb, and 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 pork all across the country. Uh, and the prices of beef from uh, from 1879, when he uh, shipped his first load of slaughtered beef east to Chicago to his brother, for his brother to sell, uh, by 1886, the price had fallen for the consumer by about 30% in real terms. That's a huge decline. The butchers and the independent cattlemen, who before had you know, very secure, very predictable markets f- for the local, local economies, they were undercut by these meat packers. And because Swift's firm was so profitable, he quickly had other major competitors uh, in that, in, in meat, in, in meatpacking, and uh, uh, they, that was a hugely explosive industry in the 1880s, and it's that industry, I'm convinced, and the reaction to that industry that sparked antitrust. Antitrust emerged in the United States, not because prices were rising and outputs were falling, which is a standard story economists believe, but because the economy was becoming so competitive. So much more dynamic. So much more dynamic. And the old line producers who were suffering because of this dynamism, uh, they complained and they got the ear first of the state legislatures and then of Congress uh, to uh, uh, try to halt this competition. And antitrust was an attempt to halt that competition. How about in modern times? Does antitrust do a good job? Does it produce more good than harm? Obviously, you know, going back to our earlier themes that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, uh, political forces are going to make actual antitrust policy different than what economists uh, might imagine in formal models or in our in our dreams. So political forces are always going to intervene. Uh, is there any? Do we have any more? Is there anything more attractive to say about modern antitrust? The best thing we can say about modern antitrust is that since about the mid 1970s, it's gotten better than it was before. This, by the way, uh, I think represents uh, a real case of the triumph of scholarship and ideas. There's no question One of that, the the rare f- cases. that the federal ju- well, because it, it's channeled through the federal judiciary, the federal judiciary. Uh, uh, did become influenced by the scholarship on antitrust that began emerging, chiefly at the University of Chicago in the 1950s. And that scholarship showed overwhelmingly that much of what was the economists and, and, then, and, and lawyers thought of as anti-competitive behavior was either innocuous or pro-competitive. And so antitrust is not as bad today as it was up until, say, 1974 or 75. Uh, but I don't see that it's – the best I can say about it is that it's innocuous. It doesn't do any good. But I would like someone who supports antitrust. 
and there are still a lot of people out there. Judge Richard Posner, although he's been a great scholar in in uh, showing how it's been misapplied. Robert Bork, the same. I would like these uh, antitrust proponents to show me evidence of predatory pricing actually working to hurt consumers, of mergers actually uh, uh, going through and leading to long-run consumer harm, of firms growing large and truly being secure, so secure in their size that they raise price, reduce quality, and lower output beyond, you know, beyond what it would otherwise be uh, in ways that hurt consumers. I would, like these, I would like antitrust proponents to show me examples of tying behavior or other types of so-called exclusionary behavior that led to actual consumer harm. The evidence just isn't there. How about collusion? I, I don't think there's much evidence even that collusion has, certainly as Adam Smith it's against the law it's against it, the law for, for it, a long time it, 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 well it's been against the law since since 1890 uh, in the common law collusion was not illegal collusion was unenforceable what we mean by collusion is, is say competitors getting together to agree on a, a high price so that they wouldn't compete right and it seems like a pretty bad thing it it, it does but then uh, uh, what, a lot of what seems like a pretty bad thing in markets turned out to be not so bad and actually helpful. George Bittlingmayer, an economist whom I respect a lot, he may have been a, co- a George, student yeah. of you, with you at Chicago. George me, wrote yeah. under Lester Telser, and he's done not only theoretical work, he's done empirical work showing how collusion under under certain plausible circumstances that actually occur, not just possibilities, plausible circumstances that actually occur – uh, can actually help consumers over the long run. It's this is not the place to get into well, that. Let, let's but, let's but, use but, the example. I want to use a different example. Evidence. I want to use a different example, yeah. and I want to get at some of the intuition of why some of these things that I think everybody thinks, oh, those are horrible, might be good. Um, in particular, I think this issue of of pricing uh, when firms are large is what we, people really care about and worry about. What people worry about, and what the FTC and the and the Justice Department used to worry about uh, obsessively, and still I think worry about a lot is. If your market share grows sufficiently large, where sufficiently large is impossible to define but is what they're focusing on, if it gets sufficiently large, you have enough control over the price that you can take advantage of people and make un- unusual profits. Now, I think everybody understands this this worry. We teach it in textbooks as if it's a, f- a fact mm-hmm. that, that you know suddenly you have market power and you can you can exploit consumers. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, why that worry might be misplaced. And and to put in a little bit of perspective, I I want to mention that next week's guest uh, plan, at least scheduled, is uh, Thomas McCraw, who's the author of a new biography of Schumpeter. And Schumpeter, I think, is the economist that I would identify as uh, being most aware of the dynamic nature of the economy and the difficulty of modeling it in a formal way that captures some of the dynamism that, that he was interested in and that I think is important. So on the surface, you can see why growing large, getting market share would be dangerous to consumers. And yet, you just said a minute ago that you would be tolerant, you implied, and I'm sure you, I'm, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, that a, a merger should be ignored. Government should, if two companies want to get together, if there used to be four competitors and two companies want to get together, one wants to buy another, so there's going to be three, the government should let that happen. If it means there's going to be two, they should let that happen. If it means there's going to be one, they should let that happen. They should let that happen. So most people would say, you're crazy. How can you, how can you, how can we stand by and let competitors be destroyed? We know that competition is good, and yet you would do nothing to stop the elimination of competition in a market. And isn't that going to lead to inevitably to consumer harm? Competition is and ought to be thought of as a process. There are obviously lots of things we can do today to make our lives better today than they would otherwise be, but at, come at the cost of long-term harm. I can throw, I, the example I like to give is on a cold day, I can throw my dining room furniture into my fireplace. Uh, rather than walk outside to get uh, wood, I, I would be made better that night, right? Uh, but obviously, uh, <laughs> over the long run, I'm made worse off. I have so, no. So you're, gonna, you're claiming have, there's a there's a long term benefit from letting uh, firms 
swallow each other, get really big, and make really big profits in the short run. It's yes. hard, to, hard to imagine. So give me the case. Well, firms, if, if, if the merger does really generate high profits, capital is greedy and capital is fast. So if a firm truly is making, if a merged firm truly starts making above normal or excessive profits, you can bet other entrepreneurs, other firms are going to compete for those. Now, they can compete for them by producing the same product. But you mentioned Schumpeter, and one of the brilliant things that Schumpeter pointed out is that competition by trying to imitate what other people is doing, that's, that exists. It's not the most important form of competition. The real form of competition comes through innovation, trying to do something, trying to do something different, creating an iPod to replace the, 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 the CD. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's that, and and so the the more uh, the the higher the profits are today for a particular industry, the greater the lure for innovators to come in and and, and to attack that. We have overwhelming evidence over the course of the past two hundred years that this kind of competition is real and that it works and that it seldom fails. It's very active, except when it's 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 it, it, it's stomped on uh, by 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 state interference. Schumpeter himself said, and Schumpeter, although he was a market-oriented guy, Schumpeter was hardly a radical libertarian. Uh, Schumpeter himself says in Book Two of Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, which is where he lays out this case for dynamic, innovative competition, that the the really the only source of monopoly power is is government. That firms just can't get it any other way. Because they're always subject to uh, the gales of creative destruction and the buffeting forces of entrepreneurs trying to take their customers away. Well, let's take a couple examples. I think in our lifetime, uh, of course, there are, there are, you're always. It's hard to know how many of these are the result of of the threat of government uh, prosecution for various behaviors. So we don't live in a world of in the modern world. It's hard to know exactly what large firms would do when, when we look at. Some large firms, we see that they act, they act very competitively, Walmart being the most obvious example. They're the largest, most successful retailer of all time. They pride themselves on low prices, and they keep pushing prices lower and lower. Now, I think the economic... If they were already a true monopoly, if they truly felt they had monopoly power, economists cannot explain why they keep lowering their prices. And I think if we look at the intuition of that, I think the intu- intuition is, is that they have decided, as have many, many other large, successful firms... That the best long-run strategy, just like you were talking about what's good for the long run, not just today, the best long-run strategy for them is to continue to innovate in their distribution chain and their technology, push prices down, and and dr- drive volume, and so make a small amount on a lot of sales. And the reason that's attractive, of course, for them is that it reduces the potential of losing their business to other competitors. Anytime you push your price up as a way to <coughs> exploit your potential monopoly power, you do in, in invite competition. Now, there's a large literature out there in economics that says, oh, but you can. You can raise your price because if you if you do, uh, yes, competitors could come in, but you can always lower prices back down, drive them back out of business, and there's a big theoretical literature on this. Now, it turns out it's, it's very, very rare. It's very, very rare that we see uh, large firms lower prices raise them back up when competitors come in, drop them back down, and jerk those competitors around so that they never enter. Now, I think the defenders of those models would say, yeah, see, that's how well it works. Those competitors never even come in to start with. But I don't think that's what's going on. I think what's going on is that they just drive prices down in their own self-interest. That's what they think is the most profitable way given the threat of actual competition. And they eventually lose that, that, those profits because not, not from somebody who does it better, not because they raise prices and exploit consumers and eventually someone improves the lives of consumers, but because someone comes on and does it, it comes along and does it a totally different way and destroys that, that market opportunity for that company. Um, but in my, our lifetime, the largest antitrust cases are rather ironic. IBM is, is the most – it was the one in, in my – during my days in graduate school. IBM was a big, dangerous monopoly. They had a large share of the mainframe computer business. By the time the government case was finally finished, which I think ended with 
it, not it, much. It, it kind of just petered away and didn't nothing really ha- withered. Yeah, 19, it went, I think it went on from 1968 or 67 to 82, something like very that. Very long case. Yeah. And by the end of it, it was obvious that IBM had no monopoly power and was basically on the th- on the eventually, but very soon was going to be on the verge of, of extinction. The mainframe business became very unimportant, and the desktop computer became much more important. And IBM thrived in that for a while, but then was was struggled and eventually lost that market share to, to Microsoft. So. In many, many cases, large antitrust cases, the underlying economics turned out to be totally wrong. There, there really was, it was in a highly competitive market. Um, do you want to give any other examples of where these kind of here, – Here's a very recent example. You know, the Microsoft case, of course, which was brought in 1998. And I can't remember when it was, when it was uh, finished. I mean, it's still, it, going, it still, in under consent it's still going in Europe. But what, it's, yeah, but one of the claims in the Microsoft case was that, well, Microsoft has such large market share and so dominant uh, in the uh, 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 operating system uh, software that, that you know, it's going to grab markets for all of its applications. Well, Firefox, I think now, is the dominant uh, uh, web browser, or it, it certainly gained a huge amount of market share just in the past few years. Firefox is not a Microsoft product. And so if the theory that, that motivated the government's case against Microsoft were valid, that Microsoft had this huge case, then Firefox uh, uh, it, it wouldn't have... Now, well, I guess someone can say, well, but, but Microsoft... Uh, uh, they tolerated uh, Firefox because they were afraid they'd get hit by government. Or uh, I, Actually, I, forget, I do forget the, the details of the... Of the what Microsoft couldn't could or couldn't do, but people are still complaining that Microsoft has all this all this power. Uh, my, but in great, ironic, in great the- research done by uh, Stan Leibowitz and Steve Margolis uh, on Microsoft up to the you know up to about two thousand, a time when the trial was in full uh, in full heat. Uh, they showed overwhelmingly with data that that Microsoft kept pushing its prices down, kept pushing its quality up. Well, again, if a, if Microsoft truly had monopoly power, why would it have done that? It it, it would have exploited its monopoly power. Or the, or, do, 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 or, the, or the or the people who are afraid of Microsoft's monopoly do they also argue that Bill Gates is a phila- is is being philanthropical on the business side or, of on the business side of his yeah. thing. So, but I, I think the argument there would be that, that that was all just, you know, again, they were constrained by the threat of antitrust. I don't, but I, th- I think that the key point that, that I would learn from that well, is... Yeah, but even if that's true, let's say, even if that's true, right, then... then, then if there, if there'd well, been the, no antitrust laws, the, the, they would the, have exploited it. That's okay, the claim. But, the, but the, then why was the case brought? I mean, because things seem to be working okay anyway, right? Well, you I mean, could argue that was, that was necessary to scare off other mal, you know, yeah. bad folks. But I think the interesting case... I like that. I just we're almost out of time, and I want to I want to emphasize this dynamic point and the process point that you made. At any point in time, there's there's a firm. It's usually the the scary firm. Sometimes it's Walmart. Now it's it was Microsoft for a while, and people have a lot of complaints about Microsoft about the dullness of its software, its ineffectiveness. And you and I, ironically, are both Apple users and ha- happy Apple users. So I, I always thought it was strange. He'll say they have a monopoly. Free to use whatever you want. There is a competitor out there. And the other competitors that have grown up in the face of Microsoft's so-called monopoly power aren't really Apple, but um, open source, mm-hmm. which is which has greatly reduced the, the, the any monopoly power they would have <coughs> on their software. And equally importantly, Google. Google is now, to my mind, the most dynamic player in the in the technology and computer world. And now people are like, yeah, Google's too powerful. Yeah. And at any point in time, people are afraid of whatever's out there. They don't seem able to look to the past, as you've emphasized, and see that whenever there was a situation where people thought there was a firm that was sort of in charge that could manipulate consumers or take advantage of people, that whether it was their actual manipulation or not, uh, competitors came along. They weren't often in the same field. It is hard to enter that field. They came along and they found a new way to do this activity. And every time we get to that situation where there's that large firm, people say, "Well, this time's different. Nothing can stop them." You know, people say this about Walmart all the time. They're 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 just going to get bigger and bigger. 
No, they're not. I have. I have <laughs> That's what it looked like when A&P was dominating the grocery market. Everybody said A&P, which some of our listeners have never heard of, never shopped in, the Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, which was the largest grocery chain for a while. People said they were unstoppable. Nothing could prevent them from dominating the food business. Food's a necessity, and yet that changed. It's so hard for people to, to imagine that the possibility that things can be different. You and I are old enough to remember uh, the 19... 19- as late as the 1970s, when there was serious talk, among some economists, by the way, of the need to break up the big four automakers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because they were just too powerful, and uh, they, were, they were hurting consumers, and no one can compete with them. I can't enter. I mean, how could you start a car company? They, how could you start a whole new car company? Yeah. And, of course, I mean, that looks silly now. I mean, these, these companies are on the ropes. Uh, and uh, uh, in the future, I have a prediction. I don't know... It's a cheap prediction in a way because I may not live to see it. I don't know when it will happen. But I'm pretty sure that if we don't live to see it, our children will live to see it. Walmart will one day go bankrupt and there will be uh, commentary about how sad it is, about how the, uh, uh, the, the changes in this new economy are destroying a venerable American institution. Our, we, grew up, we grew up with Walmart. We got accustomed to it. It's done wonderful things for our world. And now... It can't. It cannot make a dollar. It's going bankrupt. What is wrong with the American economy when Walmart is going bankrupt? That will happen. It will happen. It'll happen with Microsoft too, by the way. And Just it, as it happened, going, with, and it, may it be happened with IBM. And it may be well. They're not bankrupt, but they're not doing what they used to do. It's the same. Oh, wait, when they went out, when they went out of the computer business, there were yeah. all these uh, uh, laments on yeah. the on the radio and in the media. Oh, this is terrible. Iconic firm. Yeah. Yeah. It. It. It will happen, and that's the nature of a dynamic economy. So I don't worry about what's happening today. I worry about what's happening over, over the longer span time. One of Schumpeter's many, many fine points in uh, Book Two of Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy is to point out that maximizing output today is done at the expense of reducing output over the long run. Meaning? Meaning, yes, we can break up firms today and get lower prices and higher output. Uh, we can regulate firms today in a way to get lower prices and ho- higher output. But that w- be- be- because that sends out bad signals, because that, that interferes with the genuine competitive market process, entrepreneurs and capital, less of that's going to come in. And so over the long run, output, and, uh, output will be lower, quality will be lower, and prices will be higher, and consumers will all be worse off. Well, let me, let, let's, let's come full circle. Um, I think we always have an impulse to try to improve on our, our situations, whether they're our private or our public situations. We look at our lives and we say, our personal lives, say, yeah, I could do this better, I could do that better, and we try. We try to make, make things better. We do that in the public level too. We say, well, this outcome isn't quite what we'd like, and I wish there was a way to do it better. And there's always a tendency to say that, that a directed, top-down, coordinated approach would do better than the uncoordinated approach, that the decentralized approach that, that we're arguing for here. Uh, that both of us are, are um, friendly toward. And I, I just want to remind our listeners that that appeal is is so universal. It's so deeply embedded in us to turn to you know some uh, directed and controlled solution. And the case you just gave is it, it's just such a nice example. You know, it, we have a bunch of big firms. Let's say think. Let's say they're, they've gotten a little bit um, sluggish. They're not as dynamic as they used to be. They're not as innovative as they were. Um, they try hard to stay innovative, but we know as firms get bigger, one of the things we didn't talk about is as they get bigger, it gets harder and harder to harness. They have certain advantages, but it gets harder and harder to, to, to be creative and innovative. And so there's a natural uh, uh, sclerosis that, that takes place as firms get large that, that works against their uh, long-run uh, health, which is good because it creates the opportunity for competition. But when we look at the world at a point in time, we say, look, we could do better than this. Let's break these companies up. Let's decide how they might work better if they were smaller. They'll be more nimble. There's always a tendency to want to do that. And that tendency is, again, very natural. But that tendency filtered through the political process is always going to favor the powerful at the expense of the less powerful. It's always going to favor the organized at the expense of the less organized. It's always going to favor the competitors in the business world rather than the consumers. So what we don't want, I think, is to is to yield to that temptation and say, yeah, we could do it better. Because when we see in practice what actually happens, as you point out, it's not driven by the consumer self-interest, which seems like the ideal. 
the Microsoft case, for example, wasn't brought by angry consumers. It was brought by competitors of Microsoft that were losing market share to them, and that is consistently the case with antitrust. So I think we always want to keep in the back of our mind that even when we think things are not going as well as, as they might, attempts to fix it are going to be filtered through that through those incentives in the political process. And the lack of knowledge. E- e- even if, which you can't do, but even if you got rid of all the, all the perverse political incentives, uh, even if we had pure public servant, purely pure spirited public servants, how can they know what is the best size of the industry? And then once they break an industry up, given that th- there's now the, this, this uh, uh, institution in place for governing from atop the size of an industry and the business practices of the industry, entrepreneurial experimentation uh, uh, is, is, is thwarted, if not completely eliminated, and the, the, the kind of knowledge revealed and discovered, discovered and revealed over time by experiments and competition in a decentralized market process is dampened. Uh, we're going to continue this discussion uh, with Thomas McCraw next week, I suspect, when we talk about Schumpeter. Uh, I also want to encourage uh, my listeners to suggest people I might interview on the other side of this issue who are – and I'm sure Don can come up with some for me later. I'll, we'll try to, I'll try to get some who are – adamantly in favor of antitrust and uh, see its virtues so that we can get uh, keep the dialogue going. My guest today has been Don Boudreau, chair of the economics department at George Mason University and co-host with me of the blog Cafe Hayek. Don, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.